Hold us in your love this day, O God. Strengthen us through these moments to create in us a clean heart and renew a right spirit as we receive your word through scripture and through the words made flesh in Jesus Christ. And grant that our hearts would be startled and awake this day for the word that you have for us. Through Christ, amen. For a long time, I have wanted to preach a sermon on sex, sexuality, and intimacy. And because I drew the Valentine's Day preaching card, and because it seems like an apt, though roundabout way, to lead to Lent, I realized that this was the Sunday. Of course, I did not plan that it would be some unbelievably low temperature, but that works well because the heat of our bodies in this place this morning and the life that burns out of the readings that we have read this day from Scripture provide the necessary fuel for the fullness of our faith. Our scripture lessons congregate in one way or another around the theme of body, sexuality, and intimacy. They allow us to find our way into the roots of God's intended sensuality and intimate knowing of humanity. And what may surprise you is that they hold the beauty of God's love for humanity and God's desire for relationship with us. We live at a time when the fire of sex and sexuality steams across every media source that we can touch. The internet provides easy and secluded access to sexual material. Magazine stands scream out their sexualized captions. Grinder and tender, I bet you all didn't know I knew about those. <laughs> Grinder and Tinder open the way to the clear agenda, sex, finding a sexual partner. Everywhere, even the most cautious and prudish of us turn, everywhere we turn, the message is clear. We live in a sexualized world. And we yearn for an anchoring perspective that might make sense of the passions that arise from our body and the spiritual life that we inhabit. It may come as a surprise to many that the biblical teachings on sex, sex and sexuality are much more textured than absolute when it comes to understanding sex and its place in our lives. Let us begin with the Song of Solomon. Clustered in five books labeled as wisdom literature, this book is unique not only among the books of wisdom, but very different than any other book in the Bible. In it, we do not find ethical theological reflection as we hear in Job or in Ecclesiastes, or the Psalms for that matter, and we don't receive the sage wisdom of Ecclesiastes or Proverbs. God is not mentioned anywhere in the song. Instead, says biblical commentator Robert Jensen, we find explicit, though never quite pornographic, poetry of physical love, sexual yearning and fulfillment, 
Sung without reticence, moral judgment, or great deference to legal or social constraints. It is an unusual choice for being included in the biblical canon, not because God is not mentioned, but also because a woman's voice dominates. She is the primary narrator. Nowhere else in scripture do the thoughts, imagination, yearnings, and words of a woman predominate. So with the lack of explicit theological message, with the erotic message of the text, and with the poet, primarily a woman, why would those who held decisions about what material would go in the Bible, probably all men, have chosen to include this poem? People have fussed over this question for centuries and millennia. Two responses to this question are relevant for this day. First, the song is likely there because it takes us directly to the deepest longings of the human being, those of desire and love. And second, it is there because the power of the body in its fullness and the physical pleasure of love is a God-given gift a joyfully unashamed good gift that is celebrated in this poem and reminds us of the way God enjoys, basks, awakens, engages our sexual, physical, carnal life. God's love is not only spiritual, but erotic, body love. The poetry in the song is far from abstract discourse on the nature of love and sex, nor impartial assessments of the relationship between the two. The two lovers that are portrayed in the poetry strain for the fullness of what they are experiencing by using poetic images of fruit and flower, animals, that take the reader to the territory of sensuality, smell, taste, touch, and the sound of the voice. Renita Weems says they present an experience of love that elaborates unashamedly and unapologetically on the physical pleasures of love. And the poetry of the song rightly takes human sexual love as an analog of the love between the Lord God and Israel. But if the song renders such a a high when it comes to the pleasures of body and of sex and sexuality, and if the love story extends from two lovers' pleasure, longing, urgent engagement with one another, that this is not only about sexual love between two people, but God's radical love for us. How did Christianity undo a healthy sexual ethic? This is a relevant question, particularly in Lent, as we are reminded, as we were reminded this week in Ash Wednesday, of our mortality, our flesh that came from dust, and to dust it will return. We can trace our way through sexual expression and its place as interpreted in Christian history pretty quickly. We hear the likes of St. Paul having a strong preference for celibacy when he claims in his first letter to the Corinthians that it is better to marry than to burn with sexual passion. 
Many of the early church fathers took their cue from the Greek overlay that is so much in New Testament thinking. From the Greeks, we have inherited the idea that humans are spiritual creatures who are temporarily tied down by the body. Our appetites need to be controlled or curbed until at death the soul is set free. The splitting of the body and the soul and elevating the soul's capacity to control and deny the body's sensual nature finds its way into the evolution of Christian thinking. Fourth century Gregory of Nicaea said, What has the immaterial soul to do with material things? The inner, inner fount of knowledge must not waste itself on what is foreign, that is, bodily matters. And then this thought is picked up by an 11th century Benedictine Catholic father who wrote, Though a person is spiritual, nevertheless the pleasures of the flesh are natural to him. And once they have been taken captive by the Holy Spirit, the person's person embraces them as part of his allegiance to spiritual love. And though this statement acknowledges the body as a means to the soul, it does not develop what it means for bodily pleasures or for bodily stress, for that matter. Many of us know that the Greeks had many words for love. Two of them are agape and eros. Theologians have for centuries tried to drive a wedge between eros and agape, between love as desire, as need, as yearns for satisfaction, and a love that is self-giving, that seeks the best for the other, and that the morning after the lovers are keen to make their love-making work its way out into the world by bringing love in every corner that they touch. Bringing eros and agape together as desire and giving is a move that has all sorts of wonderful possibilities for a Christian ethic of sexuality. Presbyterian minister Frederick Beekner says the desire to know another's nakedness is really a desire to know the other fully as a person. It is the desire to know and to be known not just sexually, but as the total human being. But our bodily needs that extend beyond sexual touching can be complicated and can at times make us quite susceptible to fear and isolation. The woman in the reading from Luke's Gospel reminds us that at times the desire to touch and be healed are lodged in the vulnerable fear that we may be untouchable. There are many people who have experienced or who are holding private wounds or diseases that leave them vulnerable, scared, and unsure if they will ever be desirable to another. I am sure the woman in the story wondered. Jewish women who were menstruating were considered unclean and could not be touched in any way, including sexually. As a matter of fact, she should not have even been in public. Talk about banishment. Whether it was out of desperation or determination, she made her way to the healer Jesus, the one who was en route to heal the sick child of the synagogue leader. 
crowds were in the way, but the woman managed to reach out toward Jesus to touch the fringe of his garment, and in an instant, the bleeding stopped. She was there, reaching for Jesus, but it didn't end there. Jesus' desire for her full life, for face-to-face intimacy, starts with the question, who touched me? Power had gone out from him, and she declared in public that she had done what was forbidden, what was taboo, touching a rabbi in her unclean state. She also declared that she was immediately healed. What brings such healing to those who feel so undone by things that life deals them? Perhaps it's tied to the convergence of sexuality, gender, and the gift of God's grace, sometimes in healing and sometimes in the joy of another just seeing the goodness of our body through touch and sometimes through sexual intimacy. Former Archbishop of of Canterbury, Rowan, Rowan Williams, states it well, the life of the Christian community has as its rationale if not invariable, it's practical reality, the task of teaching us this, so ordering our relations that human beings may see ourselves as desired and as the occasion of joy. In a tender story about vulnerability and the healing work of sexual intimacy, Martin Amis, in his memoir, Experience, tells the story of a tooth disease that resulted in having to have all of his teeth removed and having to wear a prosthetic device that filled his mouth with saliva, making it hard to talk or to eat. He felt unlovely and undesirable. During that time when he was waiting to get his teeth implanted, teeth implants, he was getting ready for bed when his wife came belly dancing out of the bathroom wearing a silk robe and his prosthetic teeth. In an instant, he writes, both were removed. This was the war against shame, he reflects. The next morning, I woke early and lay there quietly laughing and weeping into the pillow. I felt fragile guileless, and exquisitely consoled. Not all of the early church mothers and fathers understood the sexual impulse to be negated or held at bay. Urgency toward a fully embodied relationship with God showed up in statements as we hear from Teresa of Avila, a 16th century nun, whose rapturous encounters with God sometimes left her unconscious with bliss. Bernard of Clairvaux wrote of this amorous God, O stormy, violent, burning, surging love, who do not permit that one should think something other than you, you tear down orders, pay no heed to ancestry, no no measure. Propriety, reason, modesty, all these make us prisoners. Sexual behavior and mortality, morality have taken a beating in our day, and I would say it's high time. The denial of the body, its sexual impulse, which was seen as dark and dangerous, taboo and restrained, is well over. 
But does this mean anything goes so long as no one gets hurt or as long as it's mutual? Hookup culture, friends with benefits, body meets body, sexual expression simply as a bodily outlet, or an outgrowth of an assumption that sex and sexuality make it simply an urge that is pent up and must be released. It is this urge that leads people to start with sex and then afterward take time to get to know the person. But I'm convinced that our sexual encounters are not only about the body and its natural function, but they include what theologian James Nelson calls the interpretive wedge of meanings that we have come to attach to our bodily life. How often have I had students come to my door confused and unsettled about even what they would call great sex? Something was missing. Something didn't feel right. They felt something in their gut that worried them about the next time. And I often wonder if the urge to separate sexuality and spirituality has less to do with some absolutist ban on sex and more to do with the pervasive power of desire. I am convinced that at the core of desire is a restlessness to be known not only by the other human, but also by the one who created us as sexual beings, as being infused with a restlessness that finds its truest and most robust engagement with God. Even our best sexual experience, even the most rapturous moments with another human being is a foretaste, perhaps foreplay, for the, found of, the hound of heaven who wants to be in full relationship with us. Our affiliated minister and Harvard Divinity School faculty member, Stephanie Paulsell, has written extensively on the body and sexuality in her wonderful book, Honoring the Body. In that book, she tells this story. One late afternoon, as dusk began to mute the autumn colors painted across my neighborhood, I caught a glimpse of a good-looking man on a bicycle waiting for the light to change at an intersection. Sitting in my car at the stoplight, I noticed the long, lanky figure with one leg thrown over the bicycle and the other planted in the street. He was wearing khaki pants, a white shirt, a reddish tie. Was it something about the way he stood, his long legs, the energy contained in his waiting? I'm not sure what it was, says Dr. Paulsell, but it was something to which my body immediately responded. I felt a certain tightness in my abdomen, a certain fullness. She had just driven back to town from teaching at a university far from her home, and she felt scattered and distracted but even after a long day, her body was wide awake. She felt a kind of kindling of sexual desire despite herself. She goes on, the light changed, and I watched as the man lifted himself back onto the bike and began to ride away. And then I realized he was my husband. She reflects on this moment, wrapped in thoughts of concern and pleasures of that day had not included him, and I did not immediately recognize the handsome man leaning forward on his bicycle, but my body did. The body of my husband, 
a body that is for me harbor and refuge, strength and comfort, source of the very deepest pleasure. Dr. Paul Sell in this book calls us not only to honor our bodies with its drives and desires, she also believes it is imperative to offer to our children, young adults, older adults, a place where the body can be honored in the range of settings. She says the practice of honoring the body requires us to offer young people homes and friendships, classrooms and churches in which the bodies and their desires are honored and welcomed and discussed. A changing body and the first stirrings of sexual desire can be isolating if there's no place in which these changes and stirrings can be acknowledged. I couldn't agree more. Growing up in the 1950s and 60s, there were so few settings I could discuss the questions I had. And it was to my good fortune that I had an amazing aunt who, open, who was open and frank about sex and provided a safe space for me to speak about my own stirrings. The mystery of sexual desire, how it unexpectedly shows up and overwhelms us, is a conversation that is live in this setting, Harvard. And the life-giving, very tender, and deeply passionate light that shines out of the erotic has the potential to give us, as Audre Lorde reminds us, deep connections with others, giving joy, creative energy, and the capacity for feeling that which empowers a person to change the world. Coupling agape, that reaching love that touched a woman with a flow of blood and caused power to go out of Jesus, that knew the high stakes of her touch and the intimacy of the moment, coupling that with eros, the reaching love that holds in its nest the desire for communion, for mutually loving one another by giving and receiving at the same moment, is the mystery of sexual desire, sexual intimacy, and sexual fidelity. And when we call for the beloved to come to us, to welcome our desire, and to awaken joy, we have indeed come close to the realm of God that is among us. Thanks be to God. Amen.